You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato and with Red Knight Properties. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Peter Fisher with Skylar Kirsch, um, who is actually a friend of mine we met a while ago. And um, Peter is a partner with Skylar Kirsch um, as an attorney, and uh, he's very experienced, and he works with a lot of um, real estate developers, operators, syndicators, even you know private equity providers, lenders, investors, um, et cetera. And he does some M and A and, you know, general, general corporate work as well. Um, really knowledgeable, um, on, you know, every aspect, particularly when it comes to, you know, multifamily real estate in the, in the syndication world. Um, he's actually from Connecticut, but, uh, back in, uh, Venice, California. And, uh, you know, want to, want to welcome him here and, uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here um, and uh, happy to talk about anything and all things uh, real estate syndication, especially in these uh, very interesting times. Yes, exactly. And we're recording this podcast towards the end of April of 2020. So we're still in the midst of the COVID crisis. Um, so, so Peter, can you tell our listeners, you know, what you primarily spend your time on um, and we can kind of divert the conversation from there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, a partner with Sklar Kirsch, um, uh, one of the sort of uh, unusual hybrids in the corporate and the real estate groups. Um, I've got a background in both, and that means I basically mainly spend my time on the sort of corporate aspects of real estate. So syndications, private placements, uh, joint ventures, uh, do a lot of capital raising. Uh, we represent developers, syndicators, also lenders. Um, and then I do, um, as you mentioned, a lot of general corporate, uh, some M&A, and also the sort of dirt aspects of real estate, you know, acquisitions, uh, divestitures, sales, refinancings. Um, so sort of all of the above. But, but my main focus is kind of the joint venture syndication, capital raising world involving real estate. Awesome. So great, you know, breadth of uh, experience in, in the industry. So from a legal perspective, um, when, you know, you're meeting other uh, people specifically within the real estate community that want to go out there and they have a deal and they don't have all the money to do it, usually you form a syndication, which is what, you know, my company does as well. So when you form a syndication, you're pooling financial resources together to buy and, and attack a larger project. So um, how does a syndicator go about that? Um, you know, if A, they wanted to post it online and attract capital there or talk to friends and family, how does that work? Is there any legal, um, you know, uh, insight you can provide? Yeah, sure. This is a very uh, challenging area for a lot of real estate operators because they just think, hey, I'm doing a real estate transaction. Um, you know, what do I mean? I need to worry about uh, these things called securities and there's all kinds of laws. You know, a lot of people may have heard 506B or C. Um, and in particular, right now, I think 
the SEC has a focus on you know, the practice of people using others and, and sort of unlicensed finders to raise capital. Um, so there's a real focus, you know, especially with the advent of crowdfunding coming in. Um, and you really need to be careful and you need to work with, you know, advisors, lawyers, CPAs, and everyone who knows the real estate side, but also knows the securities side. Um, you know, we toss around this word securities, but basically if you are taking money from other people and they're going to be passive, they're not going to have control and they're going to count on you, right? They're going to write you a hundred thousand, you know, whatever check and say, here, take my money. I don't make any decisions, you know, go make me money. That in essence, the controlling aspect is a security. So if you're raising money basically from passive investors, you need to worry about securities laws. And that's where, you know, anybody from Apple to any of these other public companies you hear of, they're doing public offerings of securities and it's very expensive and time consuming. So as a real estate operator, you're not going to want to do that. So the rule is you have to do a public offering unless you have an exemption. And that's where these 506B and 506C terms come in. Um, and the traditional exemption that most real estate operators and frankly private funds relied on was 506B. Um, this was before the Jobs Act. And that basically says, you know, you have your doctor and lawyer friends or you belong to a country club and you go and you sort of form relationships. You can't advertise. You couldn't post on LinkedIn. You couldn't go to a you know, real estate conference and start talking in front of a bunch of people you don't know about your deal. Um, and that's sort of the traditional way of doing it. You know, you have a what's called a private placement memorandum or some sort of disclosure document. You form an LLC and you have a, you know, class of passive investors that you bring in money from and you have some waterfall of distributions, you know, to them and a preferred return and that kind of structure. Um, then along came 506C, which is with the Jobs Act. Um, a couple of years ago, and if you use 506C instead of 506B as an exemption, then you can advertise and you can post on LinkedIn and Facebook. But the difference is you have to verify that all of your investors are accredited. Um, so in the old way, 506B, which is still used quite a bit, and in fact, probably the majority of what we do, but you could just get an investor to sign a certificate, right? stating, you know, I certify that I'm accredited. In 506C, if you want to advertise, you can't do that. You need to actually get a third party verification provider or their lawyer or CPA to sign off, hey, I've looked at their financials, you know, somehow I know that they're accredited. Um, you know, and another word that you, you hear a lot is accredited, right? And that means you have a certain amount of net worth, you have a million dollars of net worth, not including your home, you make 200,000 or 300,000 with a spouse for the last two years. You know, there's some level of testing for these various accredited uh, tests. So I know I said a mouthful and I'll stop there, but uh, that's kind of the, the two regimes mainly used by uh, syndicators. No, that's perfect. Um, now, a follow up question to that conversation would be. How could someone go out and you know, whether they're new to the business and they don't really know if someone's accredited or not, or they don't, 
they don't necessarily need to target accredited investors. Can you still have non-accredited investors participate in your opportunities? How does that work? Yeah, so under 506B, you can have up to 35 so-called sophisticated but non-accredited investors. And sophisticated basically means that they don't meet the monetary test, but either themselves or through an advisor, they basically have the experience of investing in deals like these. You know, they can understand them. They can look at a an operating agreement or a PPM and they can understand the waterfall and fees. And so in some way they're, they're experienced, um, but they don't meet the monetary tests. Now the issue is if you include sophisticated, you know, while you can, it's a lot more expensive because there's more disclosure requirements. Um, there can be, you know, audited financial requirements. So it gets, expensive um, and more time consuming. So yes, you can do it. Um, we typically try to advise our clients if you can use only accredited, uh, even if you're under 506B, it's much better. Um, but, but yes, you can. Um, they still have to be sophisticated though and have that sort of experience or an advisor, somebody who can you know, advise them on the documentation. Got it. And I think our listeners would appreciate for, let's just say you're trying to get into real estate and you, you know, you have a, a deal that you came across and you're trying to figure out how to capitalize it and when, when what the debt and equity is looking like. And you're going to networking events and you're kind of talking to people about what you do. And one of them says, you know, I've always been interested in investing in real estate. I have some money in the stock market. I want to take it out and, and, and do that, but I don't want to be active. And, it was, it's like a perfect fit. So, but it's just within the one conversation, right? So you still can't ask, say, well, this is, you know, this is what I do. I actually have this deal on the table. You can't do that still. You have to build a relationship first. Now, what is, what qualifies as per the SEC, a pre-existing relationship where you could, you know, have that conversation maybe a little bit further down the road, just not on the first you know, impression. And, and how does the SEC even regulate that? Because they're not like listening in on your conversations. How does right. that work? Yeah. So, so yeah, to answer the last part of your question first, I mean, they will never know, right. Unless that investor or another investor who happens to be in that deal gets, you know, a, a return that they're not happy with, something goes wrong. Um, and they, you know, either go to a state regulatory agency or the SEC and, you know, hire a contingency securities lawyer and they start digging into all this stuff. Um, but, you know, what the last position you want to be in is after your deal is done and somebody is unhappy, you know, somebody starts turning over all the stones and finds a way that your exemption that you relied on to do the deal doesn't work. Um, you know, there could be fines, there could be so-called bad boy acts and stop you from raising capital in the future. So, um, you know, in each particular deal, maybe it's unlikely that the SEC will say, aha, you know, you talked to this person in six days and not seven days about your deal, but you know, you want to be careful uh, and you want to make sure that you're doing all these things correctly in case something happens down the road. Um, so, you know, look, how many days do you have to wait? It's not, 
totally clear what the exact cooling off period is, but what is clear is you can't meet somebody in that same day, you know, present them with your deal. You can talk about what you do, you know, you can talk about your business, the kind of deals you like. Um, and then, like you said, if you meet somebody who seems interested at a conference, you know, you give them your business card and you say, Hey, let's, you know, talk about this further. Let's you know, meet, let's have a, in this day and age, you know, follow up zoom call and you can get to know the business, maybe meet some of my partners. And then after, you know, is it a week? Is it two weeks? I think some of the crowdfunding platforms have like a 30 day cooling off period to be sure. So it's not totally clear, but let's say it's, you know, two weeks later after you've had a couple of conversations with them, then you say, you know, and here, here's one of my active deals if you're interested, right? So you've established a relationship where it, the, the point is, it's not like they've just met you. They're super interested. They're very hot on what you do and you present them with a deal and they don't have this cooling off time to sort of go back and think about if they really want to invest and there's not that pressure there. Now it's a little bit fabricated, um, you know, and hopefully if you're talking to somebody at a real estate conference and they're interested, you know, they're interested because they're interested and you're not pressuring them, but that's, that's the idea, right? You want to have this cooling off period where they can sort of go away and think about it and come back and still tell you, yeah, I really would like to invest with you. And that's important anyway to have, whether the SEC was involved yeah, or not, because, yeah. you know, you want to build trust with people and you want to, you know, it, for me, it's more of educating, you know, someone first, because I have, I have had people who say, oh, let me know your next deal I'm in, you know, for 50, 100,000, whatever it is. I said, well, hold, hold on a second, yeah. slow down, go to my website. I have a lot of, you know, podcasts. I have educational uh, videos. I just want to make sure when you're ready to get there, you know, um, this is something that you really understand and you're educated and you're going to pull the trigger on eventually. So um, I think that's regardless, I think it's a good thing that the SEC to some extent um, I'm not very heavy on regulations in general, but that's actually a good thing that kind of puts operators in line too, that that helps build trust in, you know, with their clients and uh, you know, with their business. So um, yeah. And, that. and by the way, look, for the sponsors, it's a good idea to get to know your investors or potential investors as well, right? I mean, they may say something in a conversation with you and you're like, well, I, uh, you, you know, you had a problem with your last operator or, um, you know, maybe they say something that lets you know they really don't understand what they're getting into. And, you know, it, it, you, you have an obligation to sort of bet the investor just as much as they have an obligation to, to bet you. Um, and I, I mean, I agree with you, you know, a lot of times there's over-regulation, right? But the securities laws in the U.S. have worked pretty well, right, since, you know, the, the late 20s and early 30s when they were created. And yes, some people, you know, in this day and age are saying, well, the accredited, you know, levels should be relaxed or, and I think the SEC is looking at them, but as far as the rest of the world goes, the U.S. has been a very stable place to invest since these securities regimes in the late 20, uh, 20s and 30s were put into place. So they've worked pretty well. No, it makes, makes a lot of sense and, and provides, it really provides 
you know, a uh, normal individual and, and even accredited individual on, you know, a lower basis to access to these types of opportunities because yeah. this didn't used to exist, um, you know, even five, seven years, they didn't used to really exist. So um, it's a very, very new space and very interesting. Um, can you talk to our listeners about, okay, so you have, you know, you had a deal, you know, you, you, you have, you know, investor capital kind of in mind or, or lined up. What are the sort of documents you need to make sure that you're in compliance with, you know, Reg D and the SEC laws if you decided to go that 506B route with your friends yeah. and family? Yeah, so so 506B or 506C, the documents are very similar minus sort of the investor verification part. Um, but typically you would have either an operating agreement or a partnership agreement, depending on if you're creating an LLC. And I think that's the usual vehicle. Um, a lot of times syndicators will also pick a, a limited partnership. Um, but some sort of, you know, SPE entity and you have an operating document for that entity where your syndicated investors are going to come into. Uh, and then you'd have a manager entity, um, most likely also an LLC. And then you would have a subscription agreement, which is the document where your investors basically sign and say, I'm investing $100,000. I've read all the other documents. You know, I certify that I'm accredited. You know, the company makes certain representations. And then the last piece is, the private placement or other disclosure document where you basically explain the deal, explain all the risks um, to your investors and disclose anything that's material. Now, you know, a lot of times people will ask us, well, do I need a PPM? You know, when is it required? Um, and the answer is if you have all accredited investors, you are not legally obligated to have a PPM. Um, the rule is you're obligated to disclose to those accredited investors anything and anything, anything and everything that would be material to their decision to invest. Um, now, if you have non-accredited investors, again, the disclosure requirements are much broader and you, you definitely do need a PPM. But even in the world where you're only having accredited investors, we usually say to our clients, look, we recommend you have a PPM, but it's a function of who your investors are, how well you know them, how many there are, you know, how much you're raising. So it's a business decision. If you're, you know, raising $100,000 from three of your friends, technically that's a securities offering, but you probably don't need, nor would they be expecting a PPM. If you're raising $2 million, but it's still from, you know, three of your friends plus two people that they brought to you. Maybe you don't need a full PPM. Maybe you have a subscription agreement with an exhibit with risk factors in it, right? But if you're raising $5 million or even $2 million and you're going out and you're on a crowdfunding site or you're somehow bringing in investors that you don't know and there's going to be 30 of them, then even though you're not required to have a PPM, we always would recommend that you do because you think about it like a big insurance policy, right? If something goes wrong, you want that big disclosure document where your investors can't say, hey, you never told me this you know, new construction was being built on a former gas station site. And you can say, well, yeah, it's on page 63. It's a big risk in the, in the PPM. 
Um, you know, the other factor is optically what your investors and what the market is anticipating. So if you're on, you know, CrowdStreet or any of these crowdfunding sites, they're going to expect to see a package including a PPM and a subscription agreement. And so, you know, you have to take that into account as well. But um, it, it really just depends, which is something I know people hate to hear from their lawyer. But, um, you know, usually if you're doing a real broad syndication with people that you don't know, we still always recommend that you have a, a PPM or some disclosure document. Yeah, that was great. And um, another question I would have is there are a lot of, you know, operators out there, like you said, they want to do things the right way from the start and they want to have the PPM, just like you said, it's, it's more of an insurance policy. But then I still, a lot of them kind of pause because they look at the cost of, of the PPM. Can you kind of describe the cost, you know, almost yeah. like a benefit analysis to having a PPM when you only have, like you said, five parties on whether, like you said, it's a $2 million raise or $5 million raise, is it still worth it at that point? Because it could, it could be in the tens of thousands of dollars of PPM in my experience. Yeah. Um, you know, was yeah, no, look, a PP, a full PPM package with, you know, operating agreements, subscription agreements, you know, it's probably in the 20, $25,000 range. At our firm, I know some firms are cheaper, some firms are more. Um, but again, you know, you would probably rather spend twenty-five thousand dollars than hundreds of thousands of dollars on the back end when somebody is coming after you. Um, and typically, like we work with clients on a you know multi-deal basis, so their first deal will be probably more expensive, and then they'll have like a form PPM, and they use it more regularly, and it's you know, less costly as, we, as we've developed it for the first deal or two. But you're right. I mean, look, if you have, you know, three, four, five investors and you're raising $250,000, you may not want to spend 10% of that raise on a, on a, you know, PPM. And you may not need to. Um, you know, you can do a PPM light, which is, as I said, like the, the subscription agreement with the risks built in as an exhibit. Yeah, you know, and then you're spending more like ten thousand or or seventy five hundred. Um, but again, you know, I always think it's better. And I mean, I may be a little biased, but you know, you spend a little more in fees to get your documents, you know, done professionally and correctly at the outset. Um, I also think that gives you an advantage with vis-a-vis -vis other operators when you're going out to investors because it looks just optically better and they know you've had somebody professional prepare it, um, but you certainly have to balance the cost of your, you know, the, the amount of your raise, who your investors are, um, you know, with the cost of the, the legal. Like I would never say you always need a PPM even if you have three of your friends and you're, you know, raising $200,000. No. Um, but, but you want to be protected as well on the other side. Oh, makes makes a lot of sense, and that's why Peter's a good attorney. So um, we like you know, to, kind of we like to consider the business aspects as as right. right. You never want to be one of those lawyers that just says do these documents and doesn't take the business you know realities of the deal into consideration. Definitely, definitely. So kind of you know winding this podcast down. Usually at the end of each episode, I ask just three you know questions, uh, fire round questions. 
Um, sure. You know, first one being, do you have a favorite, you know, real estate book or, or business book? I have many. Um, you know, I'm one of those people like so many out there who read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, quite some time ago, and, and it really changed my focus. Um, whether, you know, a lot of people uh, have their thoughts about Grant Cardone, but his book 10X uh, is really powerful. Uh, I have a couple books that are written by clients of mine. Um, Hunter Thompson wrote a book about syndication, and I can certainly provide people a link there. Uh, there's another guy, a syndicator, Reed Goosens, who's Australian, who wrote a book about all about investing in real estate in the U.S., which is great for foreigners, but also really has a plethora of information um, you know, for folks that are just trying to start out in the syndication business. Uh, and then we can talk about books like, you know, anything by Ayn Rand and all kinds of things that are not specifically real estate related all day. So I'm happy to uh, provide anybody who's interested a list of, of things that I like to read and, um, you know, when I'm not reading legal documents. <laughs> awesome. No, that's, that's a good list. I've, I've read, a, read quite a few of those. Um, and I guess secondly would be, what are your, your hobbies outside of uh, real estate and, and uh, you know, your professional life? Well, right now in the middle of this uh, pandemic, I am perfecting my uh, cocktails and my uh, meat smoking. Uh, we've done whole chickens and ribs and brisket. But, um, you know, look, regularly I'm, I'm pretty busy with work. Uh, I have a seven-year-old son. Uh, so between him and my wife and you know, doing family things. Uh, that keeps me busy, but we love to travel. Uh, occasionally, I've been known to go surfing and sailing out here in California. Normally, we could do that year-round. Um, love listening to music, uh, working out when I have time. Uh, those are the typical things. And uh, right now, just just trying to stay sane, mainly. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? Um, and lastly, who would be one of your top role models that kind of formed you to where you are today? Yeah, I have a lot of um, attorneys, sort of mentors. Uh, there was a guy named Sal Lavinia at my last firm uh, that I did a lot of work with. Uh, back in New York, uh, Dimitri Mastropola, who's actually now um, a, uh, he works for Major Hagen and, and does placement of attorneys. Um, you know, people that have sort of guided me along the way. Um, one of my first clients, actually, who's out here in uh, California, is Leslie Smith. Uh, I kind of interned with her. You know, I, I, I was a lawyer at the time, but I was doing sort of more corporate finance and hadn't really gotten into real estate. Um, so I interned with her, and you know, she had about 12 properties out here in Long Beach. And I really looked at the various properties. You know, did some underwriting. Um, sort of just did a an internship and mentorship with her. So that, that was really eye-opening, uh, you know, and kind of got me into real estate investing myself, um, as did uh, Jeremy Roll. I don't know if you know who that is. He's uh, a guy out here on the West Coast who runs a meetup group and started BB, which is for investors, by investors, um, kind of a, a real estate networking, no sales pitch group. Uh, that's really blossomed. Uh, I started with them. I think at the first chapter, there's something like 18 or 19 chapters, and I've gotten countless clients uh, from and, and in that group. Um, man, there's been there's been so many. You know, I think real estate and, and business really is a team sport. Um, that's why I'm happy to be on you know shows like yours and just give give your listeners and anybody who's 
interested, you know, any of the knowledge that I have, because so many people have sort of helped me along the way too. Really excellent. Awesome, Peter. Well, how can people find you? They want to reach out to you. Uh, yeah, the easiest way is to email me. It's P Fisher, F I S C H E R at Scalar Kirsch, uh, which hopefully you guys can see the S K L A R K I R S H dot com uh, up there on my lovely Zoom virtual background. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, I'm happy to, to talk to any of your listeners, you know, have an initial conversation or just bounce ideas off each other and, you know, just be a resource. Awesome. Well, we, Peter, we really appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, what I'll end up doing is posting a link to your LinkedIn and, you know, your emails in the comments cool. section of this episode so people can reach out directly or um, you can reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with Peter. And thanks again for coming on. This, this is Discovering Multifamily. Uh, I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato, again. And until next time. And thanks again, Peter. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Great. Thanks.